Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, John Cuna, and today we're going to be discussing gamesmanship in sports. Before we get to that, we've got a couple things we want to discuss. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Nathan Baugh. Um, he is someone who kind of covers the intersection of sports and psychology. Um, he's got a, a good following on Twitter. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about him a little bit and some of the things he put on put a, a thread on Twitter that we think is pretty interesting. But before we get to that, uh, we want to start the episode just by um, you know, talking a little bit about Trevor Moad. Trevor Moad is a mental, con- uh, mental conditioning expert who unfortunately passed away of cancer um, very recently, I think in the last week, correct? Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to kick that to you, John. I know you've, you know a lot about Trevor Moad and have spoken about his, uh, his books and some of the things he's done, his concepts that he's worked on with yeah. athletes on this podcast before. So I'll let you kind of start with that. Yeah, it's a big loss to the field. Um, you know, when you talk about, <clears throat> like, the Mount Rushmore of people who have been influential in the field, he's, like, front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, up there with um, some of the some of the greatest conditioning coaches that are out there. Gervais is another one. Um, you know, some of the um, George Mumford, like the, the OGs guys, um, he's, he's right up there and he's worked with some of the best programs and athletes just across the world, most famously for, um, his work with Russell Wilson and Seattle Seahawks. He's worked with Nick Saban from, um, uh, coach for Alabama. Um, he's lived really just a life dedicated to the excellence of people's brains and Mm -hmm. training their minds to be the top performers um and he's worked with the top performers to get them even higher um and it's certainly a big a big loss for the community his legacy is pretty impressive um he's you know it's interesting that his his background is in politics and education not in sports Mm -hmm. psychology uh he was the director for the img institute in arizona um which is a prominent um organization that a lot of people that work in the field come out of and he was a director there for many years um and you know his work through peak performance is sort of like trailblazed where people are now including myself and Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do in the field trying to sort of pick up where he you know sort of started and you know his big thing he wrote a book called it takes what it takes and it's a, a high recommendation for anybody who wants to learn a little bit more about this stuff it's sort of like modern day stoicism mm-hmm. a little bit but just the concept of trying to kind of keep neutral mm-hmm. um yeah, you neutrality know, it, is a thing you've mentioned on the podcast before exactly yeah. and that's that's his big push of just like being neutral to what is going on being able to experience the emotions the highs and the lows but his but being able to perform neutrally and uh russell wilson's a perfect example of that that dude looks like nothing like he's just going out for a walk mm-hmm. uh, like with his dog on a random day when he's been when he's playing there's certainly moments where you see emotion but he is committed to being neutral on the field um and i think his performances reflect that so a real uh, a real loss for the community but he's put us and everybody that's doing the work in a really great position to continue the to continue his legacy um and you know, I think he's really helped shift the idea, and we've talked about this concept before of um, of prehab work. But we've talked about the the idea that it's not you don't have to wait for something to go wrong to start to do the work. And he was one of the one of the people that really emphasized that. And so, hoping just to continue to carry that message that you don't have to wait for something to go wrong for mm-hmm. you to get better and stronger. That there are things that you can be doing preventatively to try to help that. So, um, really sorry, condolences to him and his family. Um, you know, and anyone that, that you know worked closely with him it's a huge loss um but hopefully the legacy that he's built has been something that's pretty powerful moving in the right direction yeah he's clearly had an impact a positive impact on so many people um 
and I think it's you know it's tragic when this stuff happens, but to be able to leave a legacy where you help that many people and you leave something behind that other people can still find helpful and can serve as a foundation for other athletes to build off of or other other coaches to build off of. Yeah, um, I mean, he opened the door for this work, yeah. right? Like he opened the door for people to understand, like, wow, there's there's value to to doing these things, and he's by working with some of the top athletes, it's given permission for everybody else to be like, oh, maybe this is, you know, maybe there's something to this. Um, yeah. You know, it was always re regarded as like the mental edge, right? At like 20 years ago, it was like, oh, you want the mental edge? Now it's just like if you don't have it, you're behind. Yeah, and yeah. he was one of the people that helped it's a must push have, that. Not it's a luxury, must have. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting because also his background, you know, not being someone who's like a licensed clinician or mm -hmm. a sports psychologist right not having necessarily that degree um i think some people may uh, overweigh that they have a person having that degree and i'm a big believer in being and we are and pulling from pulling information helpful information and synthesizing it from many aspects of life mm -hmm. i think someone who's written about that is charlie munger the partner of um of warren buffett has yep. written a lot about um you know pulling from psychology pulling from economics pulling from um from like you know eight different areas and synthesizing right. that information as a way to really get the full view of how to be successful in something or how to approach something, mm -hmm. anything that has meaning or anything that's goal-based. And I think he's someone who clearly did that. He didn't need a degree in sports psychology right. or, or to be a licensed clinician to help work with people on mental conditioning and understanding yep. how to be helpful with that. So I think that's really cool as well. So it's definitely huge loss, um, but quite the legacy he's left. Um, so on that somber note, we're going to transition a little bit to, uh, to Nathan um, Ba, I think we're not sure yet. It might be Bo. Uh, so in advance, Nathan, we're we're asking for your apology. Nathan's someone who I followed. Um, I've seen him on Twitter a couple times and just started following him recently. Um, again, he covers the intersection of sports and psychology, as well as his experience bootstrapping a sports media company called the Sideline Sprint. Uh, SidelineSprint.com. So we'll put a link to that um, in the show notes as well. And he's someone actually uh, we reached out to to see if he'd come on the podcast, and he did get back to me um, mm -hmm. to my shock and. <laughs> and said he would. So we're really excited yeah. about that. We're going to coordinate that hopefully for somewhere in the four to six week range after this uh, yep. to have him on as a guest because clearly the over, overlap or the intersection of sports and psychology is something that we're obviously right. passionate about and interested in. And, and um, he's had a, some posts, he had a thread on Twitter that was really cool that I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit. So I'll just kind of go through the thread and then we'll talk about the components and see, you know, what we each think about uh, different aspects of it. So he starts by saying that 99.8% of athletes never play professionally and that he spent um, hours studying the 0.2% who do, and this is what he's learned. Uh, he talks about a couple different concepts. So he basically talks about an athlete and then like an, uh, or a concept and, a, and an athlete example of who sort of embodies this concept. Yep. Um, the first one he talks about is Derek Carr and sort of uh, the importance of celebrating teams publicly. Um, the second one is Alex Caruso and knowing your role, right? I talked about this actually on one of the last podcasts. I think it was one of the ones I did without you here, John, where uh, we talked about Alex Caruso um, sort of seeing that a big a big gap in the um, the G League for the NBA in terms of what separates, what prevents a lot of players in the G League from actually making the, the leap mm -hmm. is that they, um, they don't know their role. They don't understand what coaches at the G League level are actually looking for out of them. They think they're there to prove they're the next superstar. And what Alex Caruso did was he said, that's not what you're here for. You're here to prove you can fill a role. You, know, right. you can sort of show the intangibles. You can prove your worth on the team which if you're in the G League, is probably not going to be a star, at least not right away. You right. can't be auditioning for that role. I think the example Alex Crusoe gave was like, um, 
It's like if you're going to get a role, uh, going to interview for a job as a janitor and you show up looking like you're interviewing for the role of a CEO, like mm-hmm. there's going to be a disconnect there kind of thing. Right. Um, you have to, you have to start somewhere and you have to show value in a role to then be able to move up. So that was an example he gave. And that's something I already covered on a past podcast. He then talks about, um, that sales is the most important skill you can have. And he gives examples of DeAndre Hopkins and you would know this more Kevin, is it Dubron? He's a soccer player for, I think he's in, on the Belgian team. Does that ring a bell? Oh, De Bruyne. De Bruyne. Yeah. Thank you. Thank KDB. you. Okay. All right. I yeah. knew you know how to pronounce that. <laughs> um, so we'll get into that in terms yep. of sales being the most important skill. Yep. He says a great coach can make a great career and a bad coach can, can ruin a career. And to apply that to managers, that is without a doubt the truth yeah. in sports and outside of sports, right? If you have a bad manager, a bad owner of a company, um, nothing can ruin your experience or your career track quicker than that. So yep. that's definitely something we might get into talks about um, how what you're doing might not be the most important thing in the world and recognizing that and reprioritizing if needed is important. He gives the example of Renee Montgomery who left the sport uh, to be able to do something she thought had more value and maybe tied into her purpose overall. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks about Sorry in advance, Leo Messi. I know, I know that's, you're that's not fine. a Messi fan. That's fine. Um, but working, uh, he talks about Leo, um, Lionel Messi in terms of like working hard, hard work alone not being enough to get you ahead. You know, mm-hmm. sort of like a work smarter, not harder kind of thing. And the example he gives is Messi walking eighty three percent of of the of the game, and and mm-hmm. you know seventeen percent is really where he makes his his money, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's a couple more examples. He talks about Katie Ledecky, uh, the swimmer, being an example of how fine, you know, quote unquote fine or not bad are enemies of exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, and then LeBron James an exa- being an example of taking care of yourself, how he spends uh, $1.5 million annually on his body. So these are all, th- I, I love the thread. I thought I really started to capture some, some key aspects of pro athletes in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, mindset, quality of life, balance, approach to life, approach to sports. Anything that stood out um, for you and, and all those examples? I think one thing was that it was nice and validating to see another professional in the field who's talking about the relation between sports and mental health, Mm -hmm. right? And so it was just, I'm really excited to get him on the podcast and um, to be talking to him a little bit more about some of this stuff too, because it's nice. And, you know, I love chatting with you about this stuff but it's nice to bring in other perspectives yeah. too of like we're not alone we get, we're not sick alone. of hearing me yeah no <laughs> but it's nice to know that we have there are other people that are sort of out there trying to have the same kind of conversation yeah. and i think that's one of the biggest reasons we started this podcast to begin with is mm-hmm. to just like get this message out there so um i really what really resonated with me was the Derek carr piece and talking like complimenting teammates during during press conferences i think he's in a very specific role as a quarterback right and he like needs people to like he needs buy-in of he needs to be able to he needs to trust his teammates but his teammates need to trust him and i think that validation and recognition um especially in athletics is an important component of that and i think one thing that's really clear um when you're listening to athletes and maybe this is just me um but i always listen to the eyes versus the wheeze and um, it's really interesting when you hear someone talk about their game or the game and they're using I, right, versus using we. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, Derek seems like someone who's more of like the we. Like we accomplished this, we did this, we as a team were able to move forward and, and, and do what we needed to do versus I. Um, because I think that if you are a teammate listening to a press conference of somebody who is taking the credit for that and there's any room for resentment, it's going to build and fester. And that, why that's so important to acknowledge, like, 
so-and-so did a great job today or so-and-so really worked up and stepped up, made my job easier. It just exudes and brings in a little bit more confidence and trust into the team. It helped sort of cultivate that. And I think that that's super important. Um, so that was probably the biggest thing that, that stepped up for me. No, I actually enjoyed the Lionel Messi piece because it was just like it's shown a light on the fact that the dude just doesn't work. Um, <laughs> he just is lazy. We uh, know you're partial not, to Ronaldo. He's so not okay. great. Well, it's yeah. fine. Ronaldo's yeah. back on the right team. He's back uh -huh. on Man U, so that's fine. It, I don't have any qu any qualms anymore. But, um, you know, I think that, that that was another piece, you know, all joking aside, I think that that was an interesting piece too because I think one thing that I find – a lot when working with athletes is they like kill themselves with overworking themselves they kill themselves and they, they convince themselves of like if i'm working you know if i'm constantly working on my craft that i'm getting better mm -hmm. and the unfortunate piece is that's not always the case if you're just destroying yourself by overworking yourself you're actually depleting and you really need to focus on yes working hard is a major component but working efficiently and smart is also and i think that especially with younger athletes they trick themselves into thinking that like if i'm just always busy doing something i'm getting better yep. and that's just not really yep. the busy case. is not the same as productive no yeah. exactly yeah. and that's a, that's a concept that i find is really lost so that was another piece that kind of got yep. that, that drew me and that i was interested in yeah no it's definitely interesting the the Derek Carr piece you know it's about you know when you you have a chance not only is it important to recognize the team instead of you know we instead of i it does make me think of the kobe quote uh you ever heard of the kobe quote right there's no i in team but there is a me there in is that. A me. yeah <laughs> um it makes me think of that as a tangent but you know it's important to recognize a team instead of yourself and then when you have the limelight in terms of they're asking questions about you if you take that opportunity to not make it about you and make it about one other person that you can shine a light on that that can make all the difference in the world especially like zay jones is, is the teammate that he recognized mm -hmm. and He's clearly someone who's you know lower on the depth chart when it comes to wide receiver core on the on the Raiders, but clearly works his ass off and mm -hmm. is putting in the extra time. And sometimes all it takes is that that little bit to, for either the coaches to hear it and be like, maybe we need to give this guy more of a shot if the QB is kind of recognizing that, or it sort of validates the person who's putting in the work to keep going. And 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 that might be the difference where next game they really like make that leap or that kind of thing. So I agree with you. The um the DeAndre Hopkins example in terms of I think he was giving examples of two guys that had uh, Kevin De Bruyne right uh, mm -hmm. who have represented themselves so that to me that's a little bit more about negotiation right if you if you know how to um, uh, negotiate I think it's more important maybe even do your own research and then learn about you know. Uh, you know, financial aspects and then learn how to advocate and negotiate for yourself. Maybe there's a sales piece to that, but I think, you know, we're, we're kind of, it's semantics. I think sales is definitely the most important skill. So even if it's yeah. not in a negotiation where you're negotiating your own contract, you have to be able to sell yourself consistently, mm -hmm. right? Maybe that's in the room negotiating your contract. I think it's more of a general sense that he's speaking to, right? Yeah. You, if you're not selling yourself, then who is? And you have right. to be, you have to be able to, to do that. I think a lot of people are either hesitant to do that or not good at it. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, so I think he speaks to that and the importance of understanding sales. I think sales and the ability to sell comes into play in a lot of different areas. And it's not, uh, it's not a dirty word. You know, I think it's something where you have to be able to do it. Yeah, I agree. I think that a lot of people are uncomfortable by the concept of, I mean, I know I was when I first, my first job out of college was working in sales, selling life and health insurance. And mm -hmm. it was super uncomfortable. Yeah. Sell, like talking to, essentially I was a telemarketer at yeah, that yeah. age, like trying to shove policies down people's throats and it was super uncomfortable yeah. right it's like i'm imposing on them i'm a burden on them i'm all these different things right but sales like you said is not just about selling a product there are a lot of it is learning how to sell yourself mm -hmm. and that takes an enormous amount of self-awareness and confidence to be able to to do that and i think that that's a big piece that 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 misses especially in that 
like that realm of sales that people just like I don't feel comfortable doing it and what they're really saying is that I don't really feel comfortable with myself yeah exactly and so I always kind of look for those things or of, confident in myself right yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. confident in myself yeah. to be able to even sell myself yeah, to this yeah. like oh I'm not worth it or I'm yeah. not good enough right those those real deep insecurities mm -hmm. start to come out in yep. some of that stuff absolutely yeah so we we encourage everyone um, to follow him on Twitter it's at Nathan Baugh 27 so it's Nath at Nathan B-A-U-G-H 27 on Twitter um, and then check out his website uh, sidelinesprint.com I believe it's a newsletter where you know yep. some of the content that he creates kind of gets sent out to you by email um, so we're gonna uh, switch gears to the main topic for today it's gonna uh, for this episode it's gonna be gamesmanship and sports so there was a we kind of got delayed on this just because we we were pushed back a little bit with our, our recording of these podcasts but there was an Olympic marathon runner who knocked <laughs> knocked over the water cups as you know he literally was like second in line to get water and there was a, a line of about eight eight runners and it's intense competition it's the olympics right and he's going to the water table and he just swipes like the first 29 cups and then takes the 30th and just you know swigs it and then ditches the cup and i it, it made me crack up like not in a, an actual laughter way but like in a the, the, you know the, you know what on this guy like what, <laughs> what the hell doing? is that what um, are you doing yeah exactly so i want i mean I've since read that he is defending himself. Did you see this? No. Okay, yeah. He claims that the cups were slippery. So, um, clearly the guy is doubling down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it makes me think of a famous quote from um, from George Costanza, where it's it's not a lie if you believe it, Johnny. Okay? <laughs> so, so, as long as he believes that the cups were slippery, I guess it's it's fine. But, um, no, but gamesmanship in sports, I know you were, uh, you know, an all-American track athlete. We want to. I want to kick it to you, like... In the track world specifically, yeah. what are the, the, t the examples of gamesmanship and how do you find that fine line between gamesmanship and cheating or going over the line? Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to sprints, I was, I was a sprinter, so like anywhere from 55 all the way up to 400 and the 400 was my, was my event. Um, and it's hard to, in the 400 indoors, it's a little bit easier to find like a little bit of gamesmanship and things like that. Um, and definitely some cheating because there is a part of the race where you sort of like merge. So you start on what's called like a barrel or a stagger. So, you know, each individual racer is a little bit further ahead on the individual lanes. And then there's a point after 200 meters where everyone kind of comes together. Um, and there are like, you know, people did have reputations in, in the league or across the country that you kind of were like, okay, he's going to try to, you know, give me a flat tire or like step on the back of my heel or um, the big one that a lot of people do is like posturing where they'll sort of like throw their elbows mm -hmm. out to the side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That happens a little bit more with distance runners, specifically in like the 800 where like you have to jockey for position, yep, right? Yep. And so it's like you said, it's this fine line between you got to assert yourself in those races because if you're just timid, you're going to get boxed out, yep, right? Yep. So you have to do that. But then there's also like a little bit too much or mm -hmm, there's been mm -hmm. a lot of like, I'm going to get you in the ribs and take the wind out of you in the beginning and then I'm going to go forward or I'm really? going to cut you off and yeah. step on you, you know, and spike you. Um, so, you know, with track shoes, you have like those metal spikes on the bottom of them and you can run them up back someone's calf and do some pretty significant damage. Mm -hmm. And there's been definitely cases of that. Um, it is interesting that, when that happens, um, and sometimes it's totally unexpected, and sometimes you're like, "Yeah, that's mm -hmm. so and so," and I'm not mm -hmm. going to name any names here. Okay, yeah, it's, yeah. Been, it's been some time, uh, <laughs> and I can let things go. But the, there was the North remembers. Yes, the North remembers. But I certainly remember the names of the people that I was like, "I got to be a little bit more prepared for mm -hmm. for this race because they might start some stuff." Yeah. And then the other one was in hurdles too. 
if you're going up against somebody who hurdles with an opposite leg, um, the lead arm can kind of like comes out in front and then wraps around to the side. And there's been some situations where certain athletes will take advantage of how far that arm comes out to the side. Uh-huh. And because you're sort of next next to each other in the lanes, yeah. you can really disrupt. You can move if someone's hurdle. Even a half of a centimeter, a half an inch can make a big difference for yep. someone trying to clear that. Or you can literally, there was a race that I was in this is going on a big tangent here, but I guess I'm just going to share it. There was a race that um, I guess I, it was like technically a fist fight, but it was only about 15 seconds long um, because we were essentially just punching each other while we were going <laughs> over the over the hurdles. It was against our it was against was our you? rival in high school. Yeah, okay. this was uh, our rivals uh, at Reading um, and this really really talented runner uh, Michaelman, who was my rival for like three years mm-hmm. of high school he's a year ahead of me but he was my rival really talented went off to northeastern and was really successful um there in track and he and i were deep competitors and we were literally just punching each other going going over going over the hurdles uh the entire way so uh we we ended fine it was okay afterwards mm-hmm. uh we won the meet so that was that was uh that was a nice win after that but um like stuff like that definitely definitely does come up and happen and and it's hard because like where's the line between gaining an advantage and crossing crossing the line, and that's always one that kind of that was always hard. I I, I saw posturing myself by putting by establishing myself, like especially in the four hundred, when you come together, you're going full tilt at that. That's called the break point. So essentially, in the four hundred indoors, it's like I you got to be the first person to that break point, mm-hmm. or else you're going to be jammed up with a bunch of other people. So putting your elbows out and giving yourselves like even two, three feet extra on the sides that someone has to go around you is mm-hmm. smart because then they're exerting more energy to go around you and you have a better chance of A, holding on to more, but also making them work harder. Um, but me throwing an elbow into somebody's ribs, that crosses the line for me. But everybody is a little bit different with what they feel what they feel comfortable with. Yeah, the uh, the flat tire just gave me flashbacks of like being in the food store when someone spikes you from behind with the with the with the cart. <laughs> yeah. Not as competitive, but yeah. it's the closest thing I got yeah. to your experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes when you're trying to get the line in the deli, you know, people oh yeah that seventy year old woman will come up behind you. Right no behind shame. You. No nope, shame. No shame. Yeah. So, and it's the worst running a race and with one with one oh, with yeah. one spike up. Yeah. It's not fun. No, no. I can't imagine that. No. Um, some other examples, you know, I think are like I think back to like KG you know Kevin Garnett trash talking basketball one thing that I picked up on pretty early with Steph Curry was like because I went to a game where I saw him play the Celtics in person when he was like kind of I think it was second year at that point in Mm -hmm. the NBA and he had this incredible knack of like needling guys on defense but in a way that the refs wouldn't see like he was very skilled you know Mm -hmm. he would kind of like he'd get on their hip and just kind of like be tugging their jersey and like be doing different things that like you know, technically, he could be called for a foul, but he always knew where the refs were in, with respect to where he was, um, right. and it allowed him to get away with it. So that always stood out to me. I think Chris Paul and Trey Young are guys in the NBA who do this kind of thing on offense, typically, where they know where the defender is at all times, mm-hmm. and they use their body position and intentionally kind of stop, start, and jump in different directions to create contact, Yep. which to me has gone over, like, I think using your body to create contact is an important part of basketball, but what they do ruins the sport i think that the league is actually like changing that around we've talked about this yeah. right yeah. jumping into somebody and shooting the ball is a little bit yeah it's not a natural act i think right. is what they're saying right yeah. so they're going to change that thankfully um pitchers using substances on baseballs i think that's mm-hmm. something that the league has cracked down on which would be considered kind of gamesmanship might be cheating again there's a very fine line between some of these things 
Um, the only other things I could think of were like football players moving the ball slightly um, after they get tackled to impact the ref's placement of, of where the spot is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then soccer players flopping. I mean, I think I, I've shifted on this one because for a long time I was like, I cannot watch this sport because mm-hmm. the diva crap just like made it un- impossible for me to, to watch all the way through. But then I heard a few guys talk about it, like pro soccer players be like, you know, as a fan, you can't see the impact of getting spiked even a little bit on your foot and what that does and how painful it is and things like that. And the refs often can't see it. And if you don't embellish, you're never going to get any calls and it really does impact the game. So I think when I heard them explain that, it kind of made me think differently a little bit about it. For sure. Um, But what do you think? Yeah. yeah, soccer and flopping is like the big one, especially in the states. It's like I can't watch it because of the flopping. That's like always like the number one yeah, reason yeah. that you, people can't watch, it. and it's not a high, not necessarily a high scoring game. So unless you have like an appreciation for the game and like, wow, that was an insane pass or an insane move or whatever, it can be a hard game to watch. And I've heard the same thing when you listen to. I think there's a, re- especially in I guess in all sports, but with soccer, like there's a real difference between being a player and being a fan. Uh, for obviously for other reasons as well but i've heard players talk about this too of like if they don't emphasize the foul they won't get the call even if it was present right so they'll get absolutely ankle chopped and someone will take them down it'll be like a a hard like a hard challenge but probably cross the line and if they don't go down they won't get the call Mm -hmm. and having set plays especially when you're in the attacking third is really important yeah. and set plays is a big uh, you know from probability standpoint most teams have a higher probability of scoring goals on set plays mm-hmm. within the attacking third yeah. right so if you're a player that makes sense if you're a fan watching the game it's annoying mm-hmm. and the other one that comes up especially in soccer is like time wasting so there's stoppage time in soccer right so they don't stop the clock for for Injuries, or if yep. the ball goes yep. out, and they sort of like an arbitrary number that the ref adds at the end of the game, and you'll see this all the time. Like, you'll if you're winning, you'll see substitutions at the end of the game where they'll like, you know, be limping off the field at like snail pace mm-hmm. because they're just wasting time. Mm-hmm. And as a fan, you're like, dude. I want to watch the sport. Particularly right? if your team's losing. Yeah, yeah especially yeah. if your team's losing. You're like, dude, hurry up. And there's been plenty of occasions, and I get into this argument with my with my, with my my friends all the time about this stuff too, and they're in agreement that there should be a, a shift, especially with the time-wasting thing because it just it destroys the game. However, from a player's standpoint, their livelihood depends on their wins and losses, mm-hmm. right? Especially at that top level, right? So them winning a few extra games might mean that they get to keep their job. And that's very different that from a fan's perspective, we don't, we're distant from it. We're not like, nothing changes for mm-hmm. us, but something could very much change for them. And so I I can gain an understanding of it. I think there's probably a middle ground somewhere in the middle uh, to be able to handle those things. But when you listen to the players talk about it, it does clear things up and make things a little bit easier to understand. Totally. And I, I mean, I think I would encourage any player, you know, any athlete listening to me, you know, this kind of relates to the Alex Caruso thing. Like, you gotta, you gotta find any way to scrap and claw and get what you can. Like, that includes yeah. the line of gamesmanship, and you know, you don't want to go over it necessarily. But right. there's also like we talked about in the Brad Marchand episode. Like, there, <laughs> you if you're gonna be on the line, and that's where you're gonna live, yeah. right? Because it, before he became really a superstar, which came from his work ethic, and I would, I would argue that him him pushing the boundaries of some of these things is what got him to the point where he was even positioned to take the next 100%. step as a superstar athlete. Yep. But if you're going to live on the line, at times you're going to cross it. That's just I think it's inevitable, right? So it's going to happen. That being said, important to find that balance, right? Find that line, but don't don't be shy to get there, right? I think a lot of people don't want to do what Alex Crusoe does mm-hmm. and fill a role because it hurt it 
it's not good enough for their ego. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are too afraid to find the line of gamesmanship and do what's necessary to win and get to the next level. Right. I think this even uh, relates to, you know, when it comes to the, to the Alex Caruso thing, I think, you know, in my opinion, it kind of relates to a couple other things we've talked about in the past, you know, but I think we'll, we'll maybe save that for a different episode. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, I mean, I love, I love the Alex Caruso thing because it speaks to like, I feel for some of the athletes, the NBA players who are in the G League, because think about what it takes to get that far, right? I think a lot of people don't. I think who spoke about this recently it was um, Brian Scalabrini. Oh, yeah. Former NBA player, played on the Celtics. He talked about how, like, a lot of people, like, smack talk him on Twitter and on social media, like, I could take you in one-on-one, all this stuff. And he just destroy. He'll, he'll like, actually do it sometimes. And yeah. he'll just destroy people. The dude's yeah. been retired for like eight years <laughs> um he's overweight and out of shape now i mean for the most part right yeah. he's still still former nba athlete yeah and he just destroys people some guys who are like in their mid-20s and mm -hmm. are pretty good athletes and it makes you realize like we don't fans don't get the the huge gap between even the the horrible nba players the ones that don't even make it maybe they don't get out of the g league the gap between those people and everyone else even yeah. like good high school basketball players is enormous right, right? and i think that is one thing that would help for fans to understand that, but it would also help to recognize that the G League players, that I think why they struggle is that, think about psychologically, in a, to get to the G League, you have to be one of the best players in the world mm -hmm. for your entire life. Right. So think about being like the best player in your town, state probably, mm -hmm. town, state, from age 12, age 10, mm -hmm. to age 24. That's 14 years you've been told that you're you know greater than God Great. for the most yeah. part, right? Yep. And then all of a sudden, you're supposed to like recognize that you need to adapt to like an Alex Caruso role and just feel. And it, that that has to be a, a huge psychological shift for people to be able yeah. to accept that and like n let go of them thinking they're the MVP of the world in basketball yep. and fill a role in order to get back to maybe being that MVP at some point. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's when you get fed a, uh, something like that your whole life, like you're the greatest, you're awesome, you're the best, you're, you know, you're always in that position and then you're not, it's, of course, it's yeah. going to be a huge hindrance for them to continue working. And it's like, you go, you start to spiral into like, well, am I not the best? Am I, where, why was I told this? Like, you know, you start to come up against competition that's people that are better than you yeah. and that doesn't feel comfortable. And yep. I think to your point too, I think it's a big shot to the ego and like, oh shit, what is this? what does this mean for yeah. myself, right? Like, oh gosh, and you start, you just spiral into that like self-doubt and questioning your own like identity essentially yep. Yep. of what, who am I? Yeah. And your role shifts from like being the guy, right? To not, mm -hmm. right? Like, no, we need you to be the sixth man off the bench or we need you to come in here and play five, 10 minutes of like hard defense. And you're like, well, no, I want to be like, you know, I want to be like Ray Allen. Yeah. I'm going to be shooting yeah. threes all day exactly. or, or Scal. Yeah. <laughs> corner for the corner was three money from that corner spot. three yeah, man yeah, i can't miss yeah. but i think that that's i think that's that's a big piece and i think in pro ath in pro athletics now you're seeing it a lot more where like in order you only i mean even in pro sports there's only of of the people who make it which is like that 0.2% there's only even smaller percentage of like the guys that get recognized within mm -hmm. within the league and get like the endorsements or get the the extra money that comes with that type of stuff and so then all of a sudden you like you have this idea of who I'm going to be and I'm going to make all this money and I'm going to be this big impact and all of a sudden now you're being met with like no you're not. Yeah. And that's that's a big that's a big shift to try to get on board with and I think a lot of people struggle with that because it feels like a step backwards when really it's like no this is a step forward yep. of where you want to go but I think it's hard to conceptualize that. Totally. And there's some guy, you know, it's interesting. I'd like to we should do a deep dive more into some players that 
are able to transcend that and push through it because I, I find it fascinating of who's able to do that and why that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Like I'm thinking even like a Malcolm Butler or JC Jackson, I think they were both like undrafted guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Malcolm Butler used to play for the Patriots. JC Jackson does now. I think they were both undrafted, but to be undrafted, to get signed uh, as a practice squad guy, to not let that get you down, to have to push through and try to show value and, and, and scrape and claw and get what you can and then eventually get a shot and actually capitalize. It's unbelievable when some people are able to do that yep. because it takes um, a lot of, of you know, will and mental toughness and just consistency and not giving up. So yeah. fascinating. Maybe we'll get into that some other time. So yep. we're going to wrap up for today. Um, as always, try to put all the helpful li- info and links we described uh, in the show notes and on our website at grimdrive.com. I thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Grim Drive podcast uh, for our discussion about gamesmanship. We'll be back next week to talk about Ben Simmons.